Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. Review we loved. The subject line is the best out there, and it goes I've listened to several sleep podcasts. This has the widest range of stories, all recited in mellow voices. It has a human touch I associate with beginning the night with a long, deep breath. Thank you so much, Judy, for your review. We're so glad to help you sleep better. This episode is brought to you by Aromatic Roots. Tonight, We'll read from Culinary Herbs by M.G. Keynes, published in 1912. Herbs are a widespread group of plants, excluding vegetables, with savory or aromatic properties that are used for flavoring and garnishing food, for medicinal purposes, or for fragrances. Herbs generally refer to the leafy green or flowering part of a plant, either fresh or dried, while spices are usually dried and produced from other parts of the plant, including seeds, bark, roots, and fruits. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. an inference that a dinner of herbs is rather a poor thing, one not to be chosen as a pleasure. 
Perhaps it might be if it came daily, but for once in a while, try this, which I am going to tell you. To prepare a dinner of herbs in its best estate, you should have a bed of seasonings, such as our grandmothers had in their gardens. Rose of sage, of spicy mint, sweet marjoram, summer savory, fragrant thyme, tarragon, chives, and parsley. To these we may add, if we take herbs in the scriptural sense, nasturtium, and that toothsome esculent, the onion, as well as lettuce. If you wish a dinner of herbs and have not the fresh, the dried will serve, but parsley and mint you can get at most times in the markets or in country gardens where they often grow wild. Do you know that if you were to have a barrel sawed in half filled with good soil, some holes made in the side, and then place the prepared half-barrel in the sun, you could have an herb garden of your own the year through, even if you live in a city flat. In the holes at the sides, you can plant parsley, and it will grow to cover the barrel, so that you have a bank of green to look upon. On the top of the half-barrel, plant your mint, sage, thyme, and tarragon. Thyme is so pleasing a plant in appearance and fragrance that you may acceptably give it a place among those you have in your window for ornament. The Belgians make a parsley soup that might begin your dinner, or rather, your luncheon. For the soup, Thicken flour and butter together as for drawn butter sauce, and when properly cooked, thin to soup consistency with milk. Flavor with onion juice, salt, and pepper. Just before serving, add enough parsley cut in tiny bits to color the soup green. Serve croutons with this. For the next course, Choose an omelet with fine herbs. Any cookbook will give the directions for making the omelet, and all that will be necessary more than the book directs is to have added to it minced thyme, tarragon, and chives before folding, or they may be stirred into the omelet before cooking. Instead of an omelet, you may have eggs, stuffed with fine herbs, and served in cream sauce. Cut hard-boiled eggs in half the long way and remove the yolks. Mash and season these, adding the herbs, as finely minced as possible. Shape again like yolks and return to the whites. Cover with a hot cream sauce and serve before it cools. Both of these dishes may be garnished with shredded parsley over the top. With this, serve a dish of potatoes scalloped with onion. Prepare by placing in alternate layers the two vegetables. Season well with salt, pepper, and butter, and then add milk even with the top layer. This dish is quite hearty 
and makes a good supper dish of itself. Of course, you will not have a meal of this kind without salad. For this, try a mixture of nasturtium leaves and blossoms, tarragon, chives, mint, thyme, and the small leaves of the lettuce, adding any other green leaves of the spicy kind which you find to taste good. Then dress these with a simple oil and vinegar dressing, omitting sugar, mustard, or any such flavoring, for there is spice enough in the leaves themselves. Pass with these, if you will, sandwiches made with lettuce or nasturtium dressed with mayonnaise. You may make quite a different thing of them by adding minced chives or tarragon or thyme to the mayonnaise. The French are very partial to this manner of compounding new sauces from the base of the old one. After you do it a few times, you also will find it worthwhile. When it comes to a dessert, I am afraid you will have to go outside of herbs. You can take a cream cheese and work into it with a silver knife any of these herbs, or any two of them that agree with it well, and serve it with toasted crackers, or you can toast your crackers with common cheese, grating above it sage and thyme. Whether this dinner of herbs appeals to the reader or not, I venture to say that no home cook who has ever stuffed a Thanksgiving turkey, a Christmas goose, or ducks or chickens with homegrown, home-prepared herbs, either fresh or dried, will ever after be willing to buy the paper packages or tin cans of semi-inodorous prehistoric dust, which masquerades equally well as fresh sage, summer savory, thyme, or something else, the only apparent difference being the label. To learn to value herbs at their true worth, one should grow them. Then, every visitor to the garden will be reminded of some quotation from the Bible, or Shakespeare, or some other repository of interesting thoughts. For since herbs have been loved as long as the race has lived on the earth, literature is full of references to facts and fancies concerning them. Thus the herb garden will become the nucleus around which cluster hoary legends, gems of verse, and lilts of song, and where one almost stoops to remove his shoes, for the wisdom of the ages blooms anew among the sages. Culinary Herbs Defined It may be said that sweet or culinary herbs are those annual, biannual, or perennial plants whose green parts, tender roots, or ripe seeds have an aromatic flavor and fragrance, due either to a volatile oil or to other chemically named substances peculiar to the individual species. Since many of them have pleasing odors, they have been called sweet, and since they have been long used in cookery to add their characteristic flavors to soups, stews, dressings, sauces, and salads, 
they are popularly called culinary. This last designation is less happy than the former, since many other herbs, such as cabbage, spinach, kale, dandelion, and collards, are also culinary herbs. These vegetables are, however, probably more widely known as pot herbs or greens. History It seems probable that many of the flavoring herbs now in use were similarly employed before the erection of the pyramids, and also that many then popular no longer appear in modern lists of esculents. Of course, this statement is based largely upon imperfect records, perhaps in many cases only hints more or less doubtful as to the various species. Culinary Herbs In these days of jaded appetites, condiments, and canned goods, how fondly we turn from the dreary monotony of the dainty menu to the memory of the satisfying dishes of our parents and grandparents. What made us, like Oliver Twist, ask for more? Were those flavors real, or was it association and natural youthful hunger that enticed us? Can we ever forget them? Or, what is more practical, can we again realize them? We may find the secret and the answer in the home garden. Let's peep in. The garden, as in memory we view it, is not remarkable except for its neatness and perhaps the mixing of flowers, fruits, and vegetables as we never see them jumbled on the table. Strawberries and onions, carrots and currants, potatoes and poppies, apples and sweet corn and many other as strange comrades all grown together in mother's garden in the utmost harmony. All these are familiar friends, but what are those plants near the kitchen? They are mother's sweet herbs. We have never seen them on the table. They never played leading roles, such as those of the cabbage and the potato. They are merely members of the cast, which perform the small but important parts in the production of the pleasing ensemble, soup, stew, sauce, or salad, the remembrance of which, like that of a well-staged and well-acted drama, lingers in the memory long after the actors are forgotten. Probably no culinary plants have during the past 50 years been so neglected, especially during the ready-to-serve-food campaign of the closed quarter century did they suffer most. But they are again coming into their own. Few plants are so easily cultivated and prepared for use. With the exception of the onion, none may be so effectively employed and none may so completely transform the leftover as to tempt an otherwise bulky appetite to indulge in a second serving 
without being urged to perform the homely duty of eating it to save it. Indeed, sweet herbs are, or should be, the boon to the home cook, since they make for both pleasure and economy. The soup may be made of the most wholesome, nutritious, and even costly materials. The fish may be boiled or baked to perfection. The joint or the roast and the salad may be otherwise faultless. But if they lack flavor, they will surely fail in their mission, and none of the neighbors will plot to steal the cook, as they otherwise might did if she merited the reputation that she otherwise might by using culinary herbs. This doleful condition may be prevented and the cook enjoy an enviable esteem by the judicious use of herbs, singly or in combination. It is greatly to be regretted that the uses of these humble plants, which seem to fall lower than the dignity of the title vegetable, should be so little understood by intelligent American home cooks. In the flavoring of prepared dishes, we Americans, people, as the French say, of one sauce, might well learn a lesson from the example of the English matron who usually considers her kitchen incomplete without a dozen or more sweet herbs, either powdered or in decoction or preserved in both ways. A glance into a French or a German culinary department would probably show more than a score, but a careful search in an American kitchen would rarely reveal as many as half a dozen, and in the great majority, probably only parsley and sage would be brought to light. Yet these humble plants possess the powder of rendering even unpalatable and insipid dishes piquant and appetizing, and this, too, at a surprisingly low cost. Indeed, most of them may be grown in an out-of-the-way corner of the garden, or, if no garden be available, in a box of soil upon a sunny windowsill, a method adopted by many foreigners living in tenement houses in New York and Jersey City. Certainly, they may be made to add to the pleasure of living and, as Solomon declares, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox with contention. It is to be regretted that the moving picture show and the soda water fountain have such an influence in breaking up old-fashioned family evenings at home when everyone gathered around the evening lamp to enjoy homemade dainties. In those good old days, the young man was expected to become acquainted with the young woman in the home. But it is not too late to learn the good old ways over again and enjoy the good old culinary dainties. Whoever relishes the summer cups that cheer but do not inebriate may add considerably to his enjoyment 
by using some of the sweet herbs. Spearmint adds to lemonade the pleasing pungency it as readily imparts to a less harmful but more notorious beverage. The blue or pink flowers of borage have long been famous for the same purpose, though they are perhaps oftener added to a mixture of honey and water, to grape juice, raspberry vinegar, or strawberry acid. All that is needed is an awakened desire to re-establish home comforts and customs. Then, a little later, experimentation will soon fix the herb habit. The list of home confections may be very pleasingly extended by candying the aromatic roots of lovage and thus raising up a rival to the candied ginger said to be imported. If anyone likes coriander and caraway, I confess that I don't, he can sugar the seeds to make those little comfits, the candies of our childhood, which our mothers tried to make us think we liked to crunch, either separately or sprinkled on our birthday cakes. Those were before the days when somebody's name was stamped on every piece to aid digestion. Can we ever forget the picnic when we had certain kinds of sandwiches? Our mother's minced sweet fennel, the tender leaves of sage, marjoram, or several other herbs, mix them with cream cheese, and spread a layer between two thin slices of bread. Perhaps it was the swimming, or the three-legged racing, or the swinging, or all put together, that put a razor edge on our appetites and made us relish those sandwiches more than was perhaps polite. But will we not, all of us who ate them, stand ready to dispute with all comers that it was the flavors that made us forget our manners? But sweet herbs may be made to serve another pleasing and aesthetic purpose. Many of them may be used for ornament. A bouquet of the pale pink blossoms of thyme and the delicate flowers of marjoram, the fragrant sprigs of lemon balm mixed with the bright yellow umbels of sweet fennel, the finely divided leaves of rue and the long, glassy ones of bergamot is not only novel in appearance, but in odor. In sweetness, it excels even sweet peas and roses. Mixed with the brilliant red berries of barberry and multiflora rose, and the dark green branches of the hardy thyme, which continues fresh and sweet through the year, a handsome and lasting bouquet may be made for a midwinter table decoration, a fragrant reminder of Shakespeare's lines in A Winter's Tale. Here's flowers for you hot lavender, mince, savory, marjoram, the marigold, 
that goes to bed with the sun, and with him rises weeping. The rare aroma of sweet marjoram reminds so many city people of their mothers' and their grandmothers' country gardens, that countless muslin bags of the dried leaves sent to town, ostensibly for stuffing poultry, never reach the kitchen at all, but are accorded more honored places in the living room. They are placed in the sunlight of a bay window, where old Saul may coax forth their prisoned odors and perfume the air with memories of childhood summers on the farm. Other memories cling to the delicate little lavender, not so much because the owner of a well-filled linen closet perfumed her spotless hoard with its fragrant flowers, but because of more tender remembrances. Would any country wedding chest be complete without its little silk bags filled with dried lavender buds and blooms to add the finishing touch of romance to the dainty chest of linen and lace? What can recall the bridal year so surely as this same kindly lavender? Suppose we have transplanted 1,000 seedlings where they are to grow and produce leaves for sale or home use. Among these, provided the seed has been good and true, at least 90% will be about alike in appearance, productivity, and otherwise. The remaining plants may show variations so striking as to attract attention. Some may be tall and scraggly, some may be small and puny, others may be light green, still others dark green, and so on. But there may be one or two plants that stand out conspicuously as the best of the whole lot. These are the ones to mark with a stake so they will not be bothered when the crop is being gathered, and so they will attain their fullest development. These best plants, and only these, should then be chosen as the seed bearers. No other should be allowed even to produce flowers. When the seed has ripened, that from each plant should be kept separate during the curing process described elsewhere. And when spring comes again, each lot of seed should be sown by itself. When the seedlings are transplanted, they should be kept apart and labeled number one, number two, number three. So the progeny of each parent plant can be known and its history kept. The process of selecting the seedlings the second year is the same as the first. The best are given preference when being transplanted. In the beds, all sorts of variations even more pronounced than the first year may be expected. 
the effort with the seedlings derived from each parent plant should be to find the plants that most closely resemble their own parents and to manage these just as the parents were managed. No other should be allowed to flower. This process is to be continued from year to year. If the selection is carefully made, the grower will soon rejoice because he will observe a larger and a larger number of plants approaching the type of plant he has been selecting for. In time, practically the whole plantation will be coming true to type, and he will have developed a new variety. If his ideal is such as to appeal to the practical man, the man who grows parsley for money, and if the variety is superior to varieties already grown, the originator will have no difficulty in disposing of his stock of seed and plants, if he so desires, to a seedsman, who will gladly pay a round price in order to have exclusive control of the new creation. Or he may contract with the seedsman to grow seed of the new variety for sale to trade. It may be said further that new varieties may be produced by placing the pollen from the flowers of one plant upon the pistils in the flowers of another and then covering the plant with fine gauze to keep insects out. With the herbs, however, this method seems hardly worthwhile because the flowers are as a rule very small and the work necessarily finicky and because there are already so few varieties of most species that the operation may be left to the activities of insects. It is for this reason, however, that none but the choicest plants should be allowed to bloom, so none but desirable pollen may reach and fertilize the flowers of the plants to be used as seed producers. Culinary herbs may be divided into three groups. Those whose foliage furnishes the flavor, those whose seed is used, and those few whose roots are prepared. In the kitchen, foliage herbs are employed either green or as decoctions or dried. Each way with its special advocates, advantages, and applications. Green herbs, if freshly and properly gathered, are richest in flavoring substances, and when added to sauces, fricassees, and stews, reveal their freshness by their particles as well as by their decidedly finer flavor. In salads, 
they almost entirely supplant both the dried and the decocted herbs, since their fresh colors are pleasing to the eye and their crispness to the palate. 